Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. Uh, Charles W. Chuck Bryan is with me as always. Jerry's here too. And if you put the three of us together, stir us around, shake us up a little bit, put in a raw egg white, shake us again, add some ice, shake us a third time until your hand can't stand the outside of the shaker any longer, mm-hmm. pour us into a coupe or coupe, depending on where you are in the world. Coupe. Put a real deal maraschino cherry, not the kind you buy at the grocery store in us, and a nice little swizzle stick. You've got stuff you should know. I just uh, added a little egg white to my uh, my Chuck B drink. What's your Chuck B drink? It's my spin on a bee's knees. It's the Chuck B, as in B-E-E. Yeah, sure. Neat. So there's honey in it, uh, whiskey, and creme de menthe, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might be uh, mixing some up. I do a shot of gin out okay. of Lawn Dart. You, you got Lawn Dart at your house? No. You want to send me some? Sure. It's uh, okay. it's a local uh, – it's from Old Fourth Ward Distillery. It's it's a, oh, neat. a ginger lemon liqueur. That's pretty cool. Uh, and then I add a little pineapple gum syrup, just a little bit because <clears> that goes a long way. I can imagine. And then what else do I add? Add ginger bitters – you got to have— Oh, lemon juice. What about honey? Uh, honey syrup. Okay, right. Like I make my own honey syrup, not, not sure, yeah, of honey, course. because then it just sits at the bottom like a, like a dumb, viscous thing. <laughs> right, saying, don't look at me. <laughs> and then I shake the crud out of it. I got mm-hmm. these beautiful vintage 70s coops. Mm-hmm. Then I add a little lemon uh, twist. But I added the egg white this last time, and it just, you know, it gives <laughs> it that lovely little foam on top. It really does. You Do you add the egg white first and then shake for a few seconds and then add the ice? No, I add everything together and I just I shake till my arms fall off and it foams up really lovely. Gotcha. You don't have to shake as hard if you shake for a little bit first without ice and then add the ice. It's, um, it, it's way faster and your arms will thank you. I shake for the temperature, not so much as for the foam. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For I like sure. it to be, and I freeze my glass like 10 minutes ahead of time. Because mm-hmm. I like it to be so cold. It's like that's the key to the Chuck B. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm mm-hmm. with you, man. I want one right now now. <laughs> yeah, for real. Right now now. <laughs> so uh, I think, Chuck, you deserve a Nobel Prize in awesomeness for coming up with the, the Chuck B. And naming it, too. That's a great name. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Uh, you couldn't get a Nobel Prize in awesomeness if you wanted to because it doesn't exist. Although something similar does. It's called the Nobel Peace Prize, really. Yeah. Uh, and that's the focus of this one. I mean, we could probably put out a, a four-part series on the entire Nobel slate. We're not going to do that. But we're not going to do that. This is mainly about the Peace Prize because peace is where it's at. Ask anybody. Anybody. Ask Bono. <laughs> sure. He'll say, I hate the name U2, and peace is where it's at. He doesn't like the name U2? Yeah, that just came out this week. He said he's never really liked the name. Who came up with it? The Edge? I, I think so. Or no, no, no. I think it was maybe a manager at the time suggested it, and they went with it, and mm. he didn't love it, and now he says he doesn't like it. I don't know. Come on, Bono. Shut up. It's <laughs> so, a great name. Yeah. <laughs> You're he's pretty. like, I haven't been in the press for a while. What can I yeah, say? Yeah, exactly. That's probably about right. I haven't been on the cover of Catholic Magazine in months. He's probably won a Nobel Peace Prize. He is not. Yeah, oh, okay. No, but I'm sure he's won some other humanitarian awards. But I bet the thing he's been is, nominated. It's not, I, I'll bet he has too, because we'll, we'll see like anybody 
anyone can be nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. There's no great honor in that. I mean, there is some, especially if the person nominating you, like, genuinely means it, and you're actually nominated by more than one person. <clears throat> but as far as the Nobel Prize Peace Prize Committee is concerned, a group of Norwegian people who take this very seriously, um, there's no real honor in that. You have to really win the prize or at least make it onto the actual short, short list to really kind of be significantly um, within the the warmth glow, the warm glow of the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. I mean, we'll get into nominations later, but, you know, several hundred people are nominated and people like Mussolini and Stalin and Hitler have been nominated. <laughs> yeah. So – not, not, yeah, and I'm going to nominate us one day. I'm going to become a political <laughs> science professor. I'm going to nominate, nominate us for a joint award. And how about this? We'll throw out a bit of mystery here that we'll explain later. Maybe mm-hmm. we'll find out if Bono was nominated in oh, 50 or so years. That's great, Chuck. Good foreshadowing there. So I'm pretty sure everybody who has ever heard of the Nobel Peace Prize is aware that it's named after Alfred Nobel. And I would say that a significant portion of those people probably know that Alfred Nobel is one and the same as the Alfred Nobel who invented dynamite, wouldn't you say? Yeah, that's one of those, I think, early cocktail party facts that people like to throw around. Yeah, because it kind of stands out. Alfred Nobel created an explosive that was uh, probably killed a lot of people in his lifetime, but then upon his death bestowed uh, or endowed a prize. that was dedicated to promoting peace and in, in humanitarian issues and keeping things nice and chill, I think is how he put it in his will. Yeah, although the one New York Times article you sent said that during his lifetime, dynamite wasn't really used for war yet. Hmm. More Operation Plowshare type purposes? You know, blast digging tunnels, John Henry style. <laughs> right. So, okay, all right, but um, he was an industrialist, and there was at least, uh, there is at least a story that we'll get to that suggests that he was equated with warfare. Sure. At the very least, his, he was following in a family legacy of creating things that, if, if weren't directly used for warfare, certainly could be. His father, Emmanuel, kind of kicked the whole thing off when he moved the family to Russia and started creating um, weaponry for the Russians at the time, I think in the late 19th century. Yeah, they were, I mean, it was kind of, he was kind of Tony Stark in a way. Mm. And his dad was, uh, uh, oh, now I can't think of who was dad. Tony Stark's dad? Oh, God. Um, Oscar from uh, The Odd Couple. <laughs> no, I can picture the actor. I can't think of the elder Stark. Anyway. Felix from The Odd Couple. Sure. Felix Odd Couple Stark was his name. <laughs> Uh, But the point is, his dad made a lot of money in the, you know, sort of munitions business, in the arms business, uh, like a ton of money, and moved his family from Sweden to Russia, where his children were uh, raised with a a silver Russian spoon in their their mouth, had private tutors. And it was a little bit of a Tony Stark thing. Like, the kids ended up brilliant because they had the money to sort of pay for that. You know, I just as a little side note, Chuck, I read an article recently. I cannot remember where where I read it, but it was basically like critiquing the Iron Man franchise. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, for promoting the military industrial complex because yeah. they really glorified him as this kind of like, you know, weaponry industrialist, advanced weaponry kind of guy, and like that's his whole jam. And um, I thought that was a pretty interesting take because I mean, 
I'm sure there's plenty of people out there who are Iron Man fans who hadn't really stopped to think about that, you know? That's just like part and parcel with it. Well, I mean, that's a major plot point in the very first one was him going back against all that and realizing that he had led to so much war and devastation. And now that's why he kind of changed his tune and started the Avengers and started blowing things up in a very private way. (laughs) Oh, really? Okay. I wonder if the person who um, wrote the article, like me, hadn't seen the first one. (laughs) It's possible. Maybe. uh, I don't know. Interesting. But so so Alfred was following in his father's footsteps, right? Um, Eventually, yeah. he was he he um was a very worldly, very well educated person. He was tutored by the best tutors that St. Petersburg, Russia had to offer. Um he spoke five languages. He was very well versed in literature and chemistry. Apparently he said once that he could digest philosophy as well as he could digest a mule, maybe even better. But he was also and then he um, farted. <laughs> yeah. But he didn't really fart. He, he did he made the arm farting noise. Because <laughs> that's physics. Right, right. Um, so uh, he was a he was a an odd duck in a lot of ways, and he lived too long ago to pin down in today's terms. But you could call him that. He was uh, he kicked around Europe. Um, he was a very wealthy person. Kicked around Europe. Um, kind of was a dilettante and stuff he was interested in, but was also very brilliant. But apparently described himself as a misanthrope and a, a bit of a loner. I think. Yeah, I mean, he never got married. Never had kids. Uh, I think when he described himself as having a pitiful half-life, the quote in full is pretty sad because he he basically says the doctor should have killed me right after I was born. I know. Uh, really, he's just very hard on himself. Yeah. Uh, he, despite being a brilliant guy, um, he eventually started to work in nitroglycerin mm-hmm. uh, along with his brother Emil. And there was a tragic accident in 1864 where Emil and I think four other people died in an explosion. And for a while there, in fact, you could not uh, – in Sweden, you could not work with nitroglycerin uh, for a while and experiment with it because of that. Yeah, because I think his family was Swedish in background, um, so they must have moved back to Sweden at this time or else the people in Russia would have been like, why did you – that was a weird law, Sweden. Just mind your own business. But um, I guess Alfred was living in Sweden at the time because in response to that law, he moved his lab offshore. So think about this. His friend, his brother and other people who is probably probably new sure. all died in an explosion. That's a grisly death, at the very least for the survivors who have to clean up afterwards, right? <laughs> That's a big deal. Yeah. And he still was like, I'm going to keep pursuing nitroglycerin studies and and did so by moving um, his lab out into a barge on a lake uh, uh, um, somewhere in Sweden. Yeah. it's I'm not going to pronounce that lake because then I'm going to do it wrong. Malarin. There you go. Mullerin. Yeah, because there's an umlaut. That's right. But he eventually uh, came up with dynamite because it was a, a bit more stable of a form mm-hmm. Of explosive and sold a lot of it, made a ton of money selling it to Australia and the States and all around Europe, Western Europe. And, you know, he, he I think he ended up with more than 350 patents to his name. So he was he was a consummate inventor, uh, mm-hmm. inventing all kinds of things and making tons and tons of money along the way. I think in the end he died with um, and this is very important. We'll get to to his will and how it was used, but he died with close to 10 million bucks 
which mm-hmm. for back then was like 300 and change today. Yeah. Like a lot of million. money. Million. 300 million. Yeah, not $300. Inflation doesn't <laughs> right. go backwards. It didn't deflate. Yeah, um, he subscribed to that Garfield poster from the 80s where Garfield's standing in front of a mansion, in front of a Lamborghini, et cetera. And it says, he who dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> you remember that poster? Yeah, I was into Garfield. I was too, but even at the time, I was like, this is a this poster's wrong. Yeah, I don't know about that message and what's the deal with lasagna. It's strange. Plus, also, it was all live action, too. Like, it was a real photograph, and yeah. then they just drew Garfield <laughs> over it, which is not a good combination no, to begin with. that never with. looks good. So, um, here's where we reach this point where that I referred to earlier, where there's a, a kind of a lore, a legend, around Alfred Nobel and why he went from inventing stuff that make things go boom to to bestowing or uh, endowing a, a major award, the Nobel prizes, in in particular the Nobel Peace Prize. And there's a really great story that may or may not be true about an obituary that was accidentally printed about him before he died. And how about this, cliffhanger style? We'll get to that story right after a break. Yes, this is quite a cliffhanger. All right, I'm on the mm-hmm. cliff. I'm hanging there like mm-hmm. Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible, mm-hmm. whatever. As the story goes, some people say it's myth. I think it's a pretty good story right. either way. Is that uh, when Alfred's brother Ludwig died in 1888, a French newspaper got it all wrong and thought that Alfred had died, uh, which is a very interesting experiment to think about if you could read your obituary. Man. While still alive, like what would that look like? I, I thought about that a little bit. Then I was like, no one would even write an obituary <laughs> right. for me. <laughs> that would be the saddest thing. Is the New York Times to be like, who? Uh, but at any rate, or maybe a French newspaper would get it wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but they called him the Merchant of Death, and that said he his wealth came from the invention of new ways to mutilate and mm-hmm. kill. Um, it, the fact that they may not have used dynamite specifically. For war during his lifetime, if the New York Times is correct, um, he still had his hand in many kinds of munitions at the very right. least. So the reason that people are suspect about this, maybe it being apocryphal, is that historians have been unable to actually locate an original copy of that article. <laughs> that obituary. Bit, yeah. <laughs> Which is not to say it did not exist, but even if it didn't, it's definitely a story worth relating. Because at some point, Alfred Nobel definitely did go from misanthrope, who was a loner, um, who just liked to kick around Europe, to dying and in a very big shock to everybody, in particular his heirs, who were expecting to inherit that $350 million, saying— this is what I want you to do with my my um, vast wealth. I want you to set up a prize that promotes the arts, the sciences, and peace. And here's how we're going to do it. That's right. Uh, other people say, and this was a pretty pivotal relationship in his life, but at one point he hired a woman named Bertha von mm-hmm. Suttner uh, to work for him. As I guess it would be sort of like an executive assistant these days. Mm-hmm. And that was, for a misanthrope, uh, ended up being one of his closest friends, Worked for him until she got married, and uh, she was a peace activist. 
uh, writing a book called Lay Down Your Arms. And some people say that he may have been um, not trying to curry favor, but just influenced by her. Yes. Um, And she actually won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1905 in part because of her influence on the, the Nobel Peace Prize even being created. So I think they, right. they definitely even thought contemporaneously that she definitely had a huge hand in his his kind of change of heart. Because apparently before he was one of those mutual assured destruction types where he's like, no, no, if you have like, if you could use dynamite to blow everybody up at once and everybody mm-hmm. realizes that you can blow everybody up at once, they're just going to stop fighting, which, you know, <laughs> kind of works, but in a, that that's not really a very peaceful stance. And apparently he changed his tune yeah. before he died. And there were many more weapons to come. You know, he didn't know that at the time. No. But he didn't think about like, oh, wait a minute. But what if they made something worse than dynamite? <laughs> right. I hadn't thought it might, that. Oh, I don't know, escalate to nuclear arms one day. Right. Um, so he passed away in 1898, December 10th? Uh, I think so, right? Sure. Let's go with that. It's definitely December 10th. <laughs> yeah, I think it was 1898 because it took a few years uh, to get to the very first prize in 1901 because he had lived sort of all over, like you, you were talking about um, when he was young and even when he was older. He had a place in France. He lived in Sweden some. He spent time in Russia. He spent time in Italy. So there was a lot of um, legal wrangling to do when he changed his will toward the mm-hmm. end. In a, I don't know if it was haphazard, but it, it definitely had some holes in it. Uh, enough that his family could complain about it and sort of tie it up legally for a few years. Which they definitely tried to. And there's another great story, too, um, that his executor, the executor of his estate, was very worried that some of the French were going to try to put a claim on the um, on his fortune. And so he actually gathered his money, millions of dollars. So this is about $350 million today in cash, put it on a stagecoach and drove it through the streets of Paris to the Swedish embassy to, to deliver it safely to make sure it made it to Sweden yeah. with a revolver on his lap because apparently people would crash into you at the time with their carriages, like a bump and run kind of thing. Right. <laughs> but in, in a carriage. And they would have had quite a payday had they realized that this guy had $350 million inside. Heck yeah. And, you know, word gets out and all of a sudden it's crash city. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So the the first prize finally gets awarded. Like, they figure this out. One of the other reasons that it took so long to choke was not just the legal wrangling by the heirs, but the fact that Nobel basically said, here's what I want you to do with the money. You go figure it out. Yeah. Um, and so it took a little while to figure it out. Like, he, I saw it put that he um, endowed an institution that didn't exist yet and that he left it yeah. to his heirs to create it. And there was actually a potential that it just wasn't going to be followed through, that it was going to be too much of a headache or that his heirs really should have the money. Um, but finally, they they got it worked out, and they started um, releasing the, the first or giving out the first Nobel Peace Prize in, in 1901. And apparently from the outset, it was, it, it was a very well-known prize. It didn't start quietly and then build over the years. From the get-go, people knew about the Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah, I mean, from what I saw, just doing something like this, a large cash prize was very unique for the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, to give out a big prize with an award, like a cash award attached to it, is, you know, you see that a lot these days. But back then, it was um, just the fact that it was a cash prize was a big deal. And couple that with the fact that this, along with the 
you know, the other Nobel Prizes. This was a peace award, and it was the creator of Dynamite, and we make right. a big hay about that now, but they also did the same back then. Yeah, and that it was a huge cash prize too. I mean, even out of the get out of the gate, it was worth about a million dollars. So, I mean, like it was a a lot of money that was suddenly given for people promoting peace. So, yeah, I think it was innovative, and then it was you know the it was a big cash prize, and then the inventor of dynamite is the one who did it, who was already a very well known figure internationally too. So the way he went about funding it too was interesting. He didn't just assume that that nine million bucks would be forever money. So he said, here's what we're going to do. I want you <laughs> to invest this money. And then the prize money will be doled out uh, from the money that that money makes from the interest. And so over mm-hmm. the years, it's not like a set amount. It's sort of varied over the years, depending on how his investments went. Um, but like you said, in today's dollars, it started off at about a million, and it's usually, I think, since like the '80s, it's been about that every year. Yeah, um, and so like one, I think one of the original intents, possibly, was that is kind of like a genius grant where you're, you know, you get a million dollars for your work, and you're you're meant to continue on with this work. You don't have to worry about running around getting grants or right. You, you can just focus on the work part because you're doing such a good job, but. Um, and I think that some people keep the money with the uh, other Nobel Prizes, the ones for, like, literature and physics. Um, but I do know for a fact that for the Peace Prize, it is customary and traditional, although it's not – you're not obligated to, but it's customary mm-hmm. to donate that money, um, which is pretty cool. Seems right. It. I mean, wouldn't you just immediately <laughs> question your decision as the Nobel Committee if the the recipient just kept the money? Like, thanks for the money. This is – it's going to go a long way to paying off that RV I crashed. Uh, they would question that, but as one of the rules, we'll probably pepper in rules here and there. There are no takesies backsies. No, no matter what you do, you could you could get the Nobel Peace Prize, and and some people have gone on to do some not so peaceful things, mm-hmm. and they're sort of admonished, but um, no takesies backsies. No, and there's no appealing it. Like if you knew that you were nominated. And you think this was BS Nobel Committee. You guys totally passed me over. I was the right one. Mm. They won't even hear it. Like, there's no process for you to appeal it. That's just not not. Who would do that? (laughs) I don't know. There's some people out there who would do that. I should have won. Forget Malala. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) What did she she ever do? (laughs) Right. No way. So um, one of the other things, there was like a, a positive feedback loop that happened, too, between the awards and the people that um, received the awards over time, is that the the awards started to become associated with some, like, towering figures on the international stage, um, heads of state, people who um, essentially founded modern humanitarian secular religions, like, just— mm-hmm really important people. So on the one hand, the Nobel Peace Prize, being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, just puts a huge glow over you for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Um, Olivia helped us with this one, and she put it like... um, it's it's the be, be, having been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize is usually in the first line of a famous person's obituary who received it, right? Sure. Like the, they, they don't save that for the middle or the end. That's like the first thing. It's that important. But at the same time, as you're kind of 
bestowing this honor onto huge figures that go on, ideally, to become even bigger figures, they kind of in turn reflect that glow back onto the Nobel. So it's this positive feedback loop where it just keeps becoming more and more important, which is really saying something because there's a lot that has been criticized over the years, and rightfully so. And to the Nobel Committee's Peace Prize Committee's credit, they've accepted this criticism and, you know, publicly wrestled with it from time to time. Um, But despite, like, some really big stumbles, like, that prize is not diminished in stature one bit in in the general public's eyes. No. And, you know, they've even said that they hope that it uh, will continue to inspire people to do well. Like, you can't win the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, There's a lot of pressure on you after that to, to keep that train rolling, you know? Yes, yes. And one of the reasons that they're doing that, too, or that's I should say that's one of the reasons they have the rule that um, it can only go to living people, because the hope is that you're going to take this prize and do even bigger stuff, which there's a there's a critic. I can't remember his name who basically said, um, that's great, and, and like, that's a really good thing to do, but it's also very risky business because people don't always, you know, grow into the expectations of the Nobel Committee, you know, as far as the Nobel Prize being bestowed on somebody early in their career goes. Oh, come on. <laughs> I know who that was. That was J. Alfred Poopy Pants. Mm-hmm. That guy. What a disappointment. But out of left field, too, everybody had such high hopes for him. <laughs> so as far as the the process goes, um, the technical definition is that it should go to the person who has done the most or best work for a fraternity among nations for the abolition or reduction oh. of standing armies and for the holding and promotion of peace congress. And mm-hmm. it is decided upon by what's known as the Norwegian Nobel Committee – which it's in itself is five people appointed by the Storting, which is Norway's legislative body. And mm-hmm. this is just one way that it differs from the other awards. Uh, the other awards, there are Swedish committees. Um, they're given out in Sweden. This is He went all Norway with the Peace Award and all Sweden right. with the others. Yeah, um, and he never explained why, but historians, uh, including um, people on the like permanent Nobel staff, Nobel Peace Prize staff, um, have kind of suggested that at the time there was um, there was a, a union between Sweden and Norway, um, and they were starting to split. And apparently, to Nobel and probably a lot of other people, Norway seemed to be the more democratic, the more peaceful and peace oriented. Um, of the two nations. So he just kind of either trusted them more or maybe wanted to shine a, a spotlight on that. Or maybe in that way, he was trying to to um, create f- public expectations for Norway to continue along that way. Oh, maybe so. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are selected as a committee member, you're there for six years, unless I guess you quit, but you have a, a six-year term. You can come back for another term and get reelected. Mm-hmm. And uh, so far, everyone has been a Norwegian national on the committee, even though you don't have to be. No, it's not a, it's not a rule. Um, there's also assistants, um, lots and lots of research assistants. There's some that are appointed. There's some permanent ones, too. Um, and you need assistants and advisors because there's a lot of people that get nominated every year. I think on the order of usually 300-something people get nominated. And um, as part of the process, you are um, you have to, like, research those people. Like, you can't just be like, well, I've heard some good things about that guy. 
I heard that guy doesn't tip very well, so we're not going to give it to him and just leave it at that. Like, there is thorough research. The, the recipients are thoroughly vetted, not just to make sure that they are worthy of the prize, but I think also because the Nobel committee wants to protect its reputation, too. They don't want to miss anything. So there's a lot of research that goes into investigating the the, the nominees who make that shortlist. Yeah, I actually got it, my hands on Malala's uh, case file. Oh, nice. And there were pages and pages and pages, and at the very end it just said, also, great tipper. <laughs> that put her over That's the edge. great stuff. I believe it, too. I didn't get my hands on that case file, by the way. Thank you. Uh, who is on this committee used to be there could be real deal politicians, uh, but eventually they said, you know what, that may be a conflict of interest to have mm-hmm. like active politicians and political leaders. So you can't be an active government leader at this point. Um, so they're mainly retired politicians now. <laughs> right, which is a little better, but and it makes sense too, because you'd think, you know, they'd be like, well, hey, actually, Norway really needs a lot from Brazil right now. So make sure exactly. that the president of Brazil gets it. Yeah. You don't want that. And you would hope that retired politicians are a little less like that. But uh, yeah. But again, this is the these are the committees that have the final say, but they rely heavily on the reports written up by the advisors. Yeah, that happens. I think the nominations are due by the end of January. Then in February, March is when all this research is going on uh, to where this initial research, and they whittle it down to 20 or 30. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can also nominate their own people if they want as a committee. Uh, and then right. through March and August, the big time research happens. Uh, and this is when they're actually deciding the winner from that whittled down list of 20 to 30 from 300 plus. Yeah, and I guess they announce in October and then finally on December 10th, the actual ceremony where the winner is bestowed, the the Nobel Peace Prize happens in in Oslo, I believe. That's right. Uh, On the anniversary of his death. Mm -hmm. Also, just a little housekeeping here. Can't have more than three laureates win the award in any given year, but you can be an organization. So... Doctors Without Borders has won. The Red Cross has won three times, uh, plus the very first one, which went to Henri uh, Dunant, who started the Red Cross. So technically, they've gotten four awards. So you can get more than one award. Yes. Um, Yes. The only other thing, the only other rule, well, there's plenty of other rules, but one of the other big rules is, like we've said, you cannot get the award posthumously. It happened one time. Uh, to um, Dag Hammersgard, Hammerskold, Hammerskold. I mean, that's a tough word. Dag Hammerskold. He was the guy who oversaw <laughs> the 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 true like creation and um, um, expansion, and I guess the guy who really set the tone for the United Nations as a, a ostensibly a peace seeking body. Yeah, and he played black metal too, which was weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he always wore that heavy, heavy mascara triangles under his eyes. It was a cool look, but really surprising for 1961. When you look at that name, mm-hmm. that's that's black metal all the way. Hamarsk mm-hmm. Jorld? Yeah. I don't know. I'm sure we're pronouncing that wrong, too. Hamarskud. There's a lot of names I think I here. nailed it. I think you did, too. That's not a very good hotel check-in name. It, no. it draws too much attention to <laughs> Because it, they so. say, how do you spell that? And you go, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Clark. Can you pronounce that again? No, I can't. 
Say it any way you want. Oh, goodness. So uh, I guess we'll talk a little bit about nominations because we keep saying things like hundreds of people are nominated and it really isn't even an honor. Um, We're not saying it's not an honor, but we're saying that a lot of there have been a lot of dicey nominations over the years, so much so Mm -hmm. that the Nobel Committee actually says, hey, just because you get nominated doesn't mean you can imply that you're affiliated with us in any way at all. Uh, And there's this weird... I don't know if it's weird, but there's a 50-year rule that we alluded to earlier mm-hmm. about finding out if Bono had been elected in 50 years. Supposedly, that is under lock and key for 50 years by the person nominated and by the nominator. They're not supposed to say anything either. Mm-hmm. But you sent those articles that there was a bit of a conflict there. Like one said that if word gets out, it's uh, been leaked, but other people said, no, it doesn't even get leaked. It's purely speculation. So mm. I'm not sure how it works, but you're not supposed to reveal it for 50 years. No, but I'm, there are probably people who are who qualify as nominators who could care less what the Nobel Peace Prize Committee thinks of them. Yeah. And is especially if they're one currying favor with whoever that they they've nominated for the peace prize, they're going to send an email saying like, "Hey, you know, I nominated you for a peace prize," like that. That could happen. I wonder if you can get that revoked though. I don't know. As a nominator, you know that like that should be the punishment. Like keep your mouth shut, or you're not getting. You can't vote next year. Yeah. What is that? Um, Omerta. What's that? Isn't that the mob's like vow of silence? Oh. <laughs> Is it? I think it is. I don't remember. Was that for I the mafia? There's episode a or umlaut just... in there somewhere. <laughs> your own, uh, your own life. No, no. It's a, it's a, a little bit of both. Okay. <laughs> um, so we talked about nominators, Chuck. There's a lot of people out there who are qualified to nominate somebody mm-hmm. for the Nobel Peace Prize. So again, anybody can be nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, but a, a small fraction of humanity can actually do the nominating. Uh, if you are an elected official. Uh, in at the national level of any government in the world, you can. So if you're a congressperson or president or vice president or secretary of the treasury or secretary of commerce, who cares? You can nominate somebody for the Nobel Peace Prize, right? Now, is that – what I didn't get is, is that automatic? Yes. Like if you, if you hold an office like that, it's automatic? Yes. Well, what about other ones? What about if like – because I know that some professors can mm-hmm. – are they invited to be – a nominator? No. Um, they the, they apparently for the other Nobels, the Swedish Nobels for like literature and physics and all that, yeah. they actually actively seek people out. They recruit people to do the nominations. This okay. is more like, I think you or I could send in a nominating letter. They just wouldn't take it into consideration because we're not qualified with our credentials. So I think part of accepting a nomination is verifying that the person doing the nominating is credentialed, qualified to 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 make that nomination. Okay, fair enough. That's my take on it. That's great. I love it. You should be able to lose those credentials, though, I think. I think you're right. I think you should be stripped of them. Uh, they should take your saber and break it over their knee, <laughs> and send you out into the to the frontier to live as a as a scorned coward. That's right, revenant style. Mm-hmm. No, have you ever seen that show, Branded? Uh, no. Oh, well, that's what I was referring to. There's a great '50s Western, like black and white Western TV show called Branded. Mm-hmm. I think it was Chuck Connors who uh, there was an attack on a fort and something happened, but he was mistaken as like a deserter. 
Mm-hmm. And so he was kicked out of the cavalry and he's basically spending the entire show like getting his, clearing his name and like helping people along the way. Oh, but he I had like this that. like half saber that they left him with the handle in the first half and um, that he used, I think he sharpened into like a short saber. It was pretty pretty cool show if I remember correctly. And now that I'm saying it, I haven't seen it since I was like 10. So <laughs> if it's like super racist and I'm just haven't seen it in a while, please, please forgive is. me in advance. Yeah. It probably is. Josh likes racist shows. <laughs> <laughs> right. He admitted it. <laughs> Young Josh. Uh, the medal itself uh, is worth talking about. Um, they were, until 1980, made from 23-karat gold. Now it is 18-karat green gold, which is a gold-silver alloy plated with 24-karat gold. Mm. Uh, this is another way that differs from the Swedish medals in that uh, this one is designed um, differently. It's designed by a sculptor named Gustav uh, Vigeland, and on the front has Alfred Nobel's image, which again is different from the Swedish one. And I keep wanting to say Swiss. And the uh, I think there are three men with some Latin on the back uh, for the peace and brotherhood of men. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Latin, that would be propace et uh, fraternitate gentium. Pace. Pace? Mm-hmm. Propace? Mm-hmm. Did you take Latin? No. You just some, know that Somebody, <laughs> I, I picked that up somewhere along the way, and for some reason, it's always stuck with me. Pro Pache. All right. Well, now I know. I'll know it forever. Yeah. What, Pache or just the whole thing? Just the Pache part. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then you get your name engraved, of course, so it doesn't get mixed up with, uh, <laughs> you know, in customs or whatever. Right. So, um, so okay. So, I think we've reached a point. Oh, well, you want to take a break before we, we go on? Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a break, everybody, and then we're going to come back with some more great stuff. So don't go anywhere because you're going to love it. Okay, so we kind of alluded earlier to the the idea that um, the Nobel Peace Prize Committee is, like, when they give a prize, it's not just like, hey, good work. It's, hey, keep doing good work. You know, the world's watching you. So there's there's actually been, since there's different people who have served on the committee over the years, the committee as a whole has kind of taken different routes to deciding who should get what award. And there's a a legal scholar named Roger P. Alford out of Notre Dame. um, And he says that you can pretty much divide the era um, or the the history of the the Nobel Peace Prize into different eras depending on the committee. And that basically leading up to World War II, it was mostly like pacifist committees um, or like peace committees, peace congresses, like uh, Nobel is spe- specifically called out in his will. And then after World War II and then into the Cold War, it started to kind of shift a little. Yeah, you know, people who put democracy forward, a lot of humanitarian and uh, human rights individuals mm-hmm. and groups, mm-hmm. uh, people like Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela and Malala. Mm-hmm. Um, Jimmy Carter got one in the early 2000s for his uh, post-presidency work that he's done. Yeah. <laughs> People like that. Um, I think that they can give it to, and many times have given it to, uh, and sometimes to some controversy, people on um, different sides of an issue. Mm-hmm. 
Um, like in 93, Nelson Mandela got it along with F.W. de Klerk, uh, who you might remember from our apartheid episode. He was the South African president who uh, negotiated um, to end apartheid um, with Mandela and other black leaders. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, sometimes they'll do something like that and mix it up and say, you know, these two people brokered this, uh, even though they're on different sides of the of the issue initially. Yes. So they've they've tried that. It it was successful with uh, Mandela and de Klerk. Um, at the same time, they tried that. They had tried it twenty years earlier for the nineteen seventy three award. They tried to um, give it to Henry Kissinger and uh, Le Duc To, who was a North Vietnamese um, politician, and he helped broker the end of the the um, the Vietnam War between Vietnam and the United States, although the Vietnam War continued on. And Le Duc To actually was the only person uh, in the history of the Nobel Peace Prize to turn it down because he he had to share it with Kissinger. And he said that the award put the invader and the invaded as equal. And, I mean, even taking the idea that it was, you know, a a joint award between Kissinger and Le Duc To, a lot of people have said, like, you can't give a Nobel Peace Prize to Kissinger. Yeah, he was a war hawk. He was he was a war criminal, a lot of people think. Like, he did some really awful stuff. Carpet bombings, civilian, like, just, oh, ton, hundreds of thousands of civilian deaths, um, escalation of the war, like a secret war in Cambodia, um, all sorts of terrible stuff. We'll have to do an a, um, yeah. episode on Henry Kissinger one day, but um, that's a good example of a controversial winner and also a split Nobel Prize winner and also somebody turning down the Nobel. Yeah, um, a lot of times they will admonish people in retrospect, even though there are no takesies backsies like we mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will say, "Hey, we gave you a Nobel Peace Prize, and then you went on to do some not so peaceful things." Uh, even admonish Barack Obama, who won in his first year presidency uh, for things like drone strikes mm-hmm. and overthrowing Gaddafi. Um, so you can get your your hand spanked afterward. Uh, again, they can't they can't really do anything. But they can say you're very publicly, you're not living up to this prize that you earned, and that's the expectation. Yeah, I mean, and that's a problem with with that's part of that thing of like giving out awards to people who are still alive and still in their careers, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Song Suu Kyi from uh, Myanmar was like this huge democratic activist, and I guess everybody just presumed that she was also a peace activist too. And when she finally came to power, um, she actually oversaw a lot of, um, like, basically war crimes carried out by her troops against uh, minorities within her country. Yeah. Which really surprised a lot of people. Um, And I think it surprised the Nobel Committee. Um, There's an Ethiopian prime minister named uh, Abiy Ahmed. He won in 2019 because he helped finally end the civil war between uh, Ethiopia and Eritrea, which is a big deal. I mean, that, that, that civil war had been going on for since the 90s, I believe. But uh, a short time after that, he also oversaw uh, ethnic cleansing in, in uh, a region where minorities lived in his own country as well. So um, it seems dicey to, to give it to a head of state because there's so much dirty business involved in just being a head of state in the 20th yeah. and 21st century that— I just, I can't imagine giving it to, I I can't see them giving it to another head of state again, especially after Obama, too. They got swept up in the, the, you know, the whole 2008 Hope campaign, Mm -hmm. 
and gave it to him within a few months of him becoming president in 2009. It was um, premature. Yeah, it was. And they even said it was premature. And even at the time, people, Democrats and Republicans alike, thought it was a premature kind of a misstep, really. Um, so I'll bet they don't give it to another head of state again any time you and I are still alive. Mm, I could see that for sure. I mean, they, you know, they they do their own thing because they can, but they certainly don't love these controversies. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that Gandhi never got one is is a, sort of a big stain on the, the committee. Uh, he was nominated either five or six times over the years and never got it. Um, some people say that Oh, Gandhi was too India-centric and he was a nationalist. Other people say that there were violent protests that he certainly didn't um, call for, but uh, were done because of the things he was doing. Um, Other people say, well, that's just a symptom of this Eurocentrism that Mm. the Nobel Committee has, which is like up until 1960, I think – it was almost exclusively Americans and Europeans that got it. Mm-hmm. And then since then, there's been quite a few, you know, non-Europeans and Americans, but people will still criticize and say, yeah, but even when it goes to a non-European or American, it's someone that's probably aligned with their interest in some way. Yeah, because we said earlier that, um, you know, you can – some people divide the eras of the Nobel Prize up in one of those eras is pro-democracy. And the, the Nobel Prize committee has definitely, like, cast their lot um, among the democratic part of the world order. Like, they're pro-democracy, which doesn't account for communism and other um, other political ideas that could, would have them turn a blind eye, I guess, to people who are doing good, peaceful work but aren't necessarily pro-democracy, I think is one of the big criticisms. Yeah, that's a slippery slope. It really is. And I mean, like— And I hate even saying those two words. <laughs> yeah. It, no, it, it definitely is. And I, I don't think anybody's saying, like, hey, you should turn your back on democracy. I think what they're saying is, is like, hey, just because somebody's, you know, pro-communist, if they're— doing more activist piecework than anybody else on the planet don't don't overlook them i think is the point yeah like give putin his day <laughs> right <laughs> i wonder Please. how many times he's been nominated <laughs> oh i'm sure there have been some interests that have nominated him don't you think sure definitely yeah or they got the poison right <laughs> i probably shouldn't even say that out loud oh that's the other thing we can't you can't nominate yourself Oh, yeah, that seems obvious, but yeah, that's a rule. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, imagine the Peace Prize winner who nominated himself or herself. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't do that. There is an alternative award that some people say we should look to, which is the Right Livelihood Award, uh, known as the Alternative Nobel. Um, Swedish-German writer uh, Jakob von Uxkul nice. uh, created this in 1980 after he went to the Nobel Committee and uh, the foundation said, hey, why don't we add prizes for the environment and one that promotes perspectives from other people that aren't necessarily uh, European or American? And they went, nah. And he He said, all right, so I'll create my own prize. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, great, no one cares. (laughs) I don't think they said that. (laughs) They said, get out. Well, yeah, I saw that they politely turned it down. Yeah, I'm sure it was, it was all above board, but the Right Livelihood Award is what some people say we should look to. Yeah. Uh, but I'd never heard of it, so they're not uh, 
Certainly not marketed well. So apparently he funded it, and he also offered to fund those two additional um, Nobel Prizes by selling his stamp collection. Oh, really? Isn't that cute? How much money did he get for that? He had a million-dollar stamp collection, apparently, at the time. Hey, it's not bad. So that's it. That's the final word on Nobel Peace Prizes. What do you think? I think it was pretty good. Yep, same here. And if you think it was pretty good, then stick around for some pretty good listener mail because Chuck said pretty good, I said pretty good, then I said listener mail, which of course means it's time for listener mail. Uh, Hey guys, I have to push back a little here on something you said in your cookie podcast. Mm. Uh, The point was made that brownies are technically cookies, bar cookies. Chuck yeah. wasn't on board, but Josh was, and I just can't let it go, you guys. I turned over all night over this one. <laughs> uh, how can a brownie be a cookie? Cookies are made from dough. Brownies, like Josh said, uh, you can't be a batter like cake, but brownies are definitely batter. Mm. Uh, cookies can be made into a large pan-sized treat. Brownies have to be made that way. Mm. You can't make individual brownies on a pan because of the nature of the batter. They have to be cut into pieces like cake. Lemon bars were brought up as another example of a bar cookie, but lemon bars have a bottom crust and filling more like a pie and can't be baked individually either. Uh, I have to think that the ability to make individual items on a pan and the classification of the pre-baked components, dough versus batter versus filling, are crucial parts of what separates these desserts. Maybe there's something I'm missing in the bar cookie designation that makes it appropriate, but otherwise, I just can't get on board with calling brownies cookies. If anything, I think they belong in the cake family and lemon bars in the pie family. I love you guys, my family, and I will continue to enjoy your work. Danielle from Anaheim, California. Or, Man. I'm sorry, this is Daniel. Okay. Well, maybe you said it in the French way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> sorry, Daniel. Um, sorry. And uh, I, I think, I don't know if it's going to make you feel better or worse that I've actually come around to the idea that brownies are not cookies. Hey, look at there, everybody. It's true. The batter fact just completely undermines the idea that they're cookies. If they're made from batter, so they can't be cookies. I, I agree. The batter And factor. I think the idea that lemon bar is actually more related to pie, as Daniel put it, is pretty persuasive, too. So yeah. just forget I ever said that whole thing about brownies being cookies. Throw some meringue on a lemon bar. That's a piece of pie. Yeah. It, it, it totally is, especially if you cut it in like a little triangle wedge. That's right. Uh, Well, if you have been tossing and turning all night and have to get something off your chest to us, we want to hear it. You can send it in an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.